right, we're, uh, we just started the book of Acts last time. As we talked, a little bit of review, we talked about Acts and Luke are written by the same person. That's Luke, who is a companion of Paul. Luke is known as the beloved physician, as he said in Colossians. So Acts chapter 1 picks up right off where it ends. The story ends in Luke chapter 24, just a little bit of overlap. In Luke chapter 23, we have the death and burial of Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, we have his resurrection and his appearing to the two on the road to Emmaus and to the disciples. And he gives clear evidence that he is physically resurrected from the dead. And he says, uh, I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. Just check me out. I have flesh and bones. He took bread and he took honeycomb and ate it to, to demonstrate that he was bodily resurrected. It wasn't a ghost, it wasn't a spirit. And he told them in Luke 24, 49, tarry in the city of Jerusalem, wait there until you're endued with power from on high. So the book of Acts covers, picks it up from there and covers approximately the first 30 years of the church's history from the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to the time that Paul makes it to Rome. So Luke relied on the testimony of other eyewitnesses and investigation writing Luke, but in, in Acts, uh, quite a bit of it, he's personally familiar with having been a companion of Paul, particularly the second half. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that the foundation, he said the gospel that he preached was Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, which means in fulfillment of the prophecies, he was buried and then he rose from the dead. On the third day, according to the scriptures, he said, if Christ isn't raised, either it happened or it didn't. If he's not raised from the dead, your faith is useless. It's empty. We're all still in our sins. We're false witnesses about God. The entire faith hangs on whether these things actually happened or did not. One of the benefits of studying the book of Acts is Paul, after he explains, this is the faith, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in fulfillment of the prophecies and as as uh, confirmed by the testimony of eyewitnesses. And in the book of Acts, we will see the testimony of eyewitnesses, the people who saw Jesus raised from the dead, and we'll also see them explaining the prophecies. So while Jesus, at the end of Luke 24, opened the minds of the apostles to understand the scriptures, and he explained to the two on the road to Emmaus the prophecies, we don't have that in Luke 24. If we want to get an idea of what the prophecies are, we can listen carefully, very carefully, to what the, the apostles taught in the book of Acts. And I'll give you a hint right now. is You can't just look at the footnotes, the cheater footnotes in your Bibles when they're quoting a verse. Because they're a bunch, they, don't only, they only do that. They only put the reference in, in Bibles, uh, in the footnotes, when they're actually quoting a verse. But a lot of times... They're alluding to a verse, or he'll mention something, and he just assumes that you know what he's talking about, that you're thoroughly fluent in the Old Testament scriptures. So that's why you got to dig a little deeper to really understand what's going on here. So that's, what, that's the, the benefit of, of studying the book of Acts, the foundation of the faith. We'll see the prophecies, and we'll also see how the gospel spread and the testimony of the eyewitnesses and what they suffered for what they believed. So, we also talked about during the 40 days that Jesus appeared after his resurrection, he's speaking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the gospel. The kingdom is what Jesus said to be preached to the whole world before he came. 
And so when we're sharing the gospel with other people, we should be preaching the gospel of the kingdom, not the prosperity gospel, not the how, do, how does God get me out of my personal pro- jam gospel. It's the gospel of the kingdom, right? And this is what we see. The beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus is, is talking about the kingdom of God at the, at the very last verse of the book of Acts. Paul's in Rome, and he's preaching the message of the kingdom of God. So that's, it's all about the kingdom of God from beginning to end here. And this is the message we need to be proclaiming and sharing to the world, the message of the kingdom of God. And studying the book of Acts will give us a better handle on how to do that. So also mention... The book of Acts, a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit. So it was an opportunity for us to learn more about the Holy Spirit and studying the book of Acts. As we go forward in the first eight verses, the Holy Spirit was mentioned three times already. And uh, it, uh, uh, it says that in Acts, Acts chapter 1 and verse 2, it says that the, uh, Jesus gave commands to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. So even though he's the Son of God, he's giving commands through the Holy Spirit. He, he said, told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem. In a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit was, is talked about by Jesus. And he said that the Holy Spirit would give them power. Uh, and of course that happens in Acts chapter 2 uh, as well. So they receive power from the Holy Spirit when they're baptized by the Holy Spirit. So I want to pick up, let's... Uh, Pick up the story here. So we left off in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I want to back up a little bit and start reading in verse 4. I want to read Acts chapter 1, verse 4 to verse 11. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard... Uh, from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you shall be my be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand staring into heaven? The same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So there you have the ascension of Jesus into heaven. So Jesus tells the people, uh, the apostles, they'll be with his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's a very, very graphic demonstration. You're going to go to the end of the earth for me, starting here. Uh, the uh, Tertullian was talking about this this statement here, and I, I find it kind of interesting. I just want to share it about he saw this as a fulfillment of a prophecy that that, that the, the message would go out to the end of the earth. Does that remind you of anything in the Old Testament? Uh, I read from from uh, Tertullian. It's against Marcion, Book Four. 
uh, chapter 43 in Ananasian Fathers, volume 3, page 423. And he, uh, Tertullian says, We have set forth Jesus Christ as none other than the Christ of the Creator. Our proofs we have drawn from his doctrines, maxims, affections, feelings, miracles, suffering, and even resurrection, as foretold by the prophets. Even to the last he taught us the same truth of his mission, when he sent forth his apostles to preach the gospel among the nations, for he has thus fulfilled the psalm, their sound is gone through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That's from Psalm 19, Psalm 19 and verse 5. And uh, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's read there. Psalm 19, the first five verses, and if you have a, a Bible based on the Septuagint, it Psalm 18. I never thought about this passage in this way, but uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows the creation of his hands. Day to day utters speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voices are not heard. Their proclamation went forth into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Uh, so this is a beautiful picture. Is that uh, I think about this. This is David who's writing, and, and this is when the kingdom of God is basically is in, is in Israel, and he's talking about the message of God. And I think you know he's talking about the, the primary meaning is when you look up at the, at the heavens and the skies and you see the beautiful things of creation. This speaks to all the nations of the world, all the languages of the world, and to all the people of the world. Tertullian saw that this was being fulfilled also by the apostles, that the, the message of God was going out to people of every language, and it would go out to the end of the earth, as Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. Uh, so, when we think of the end of the earth, we've got a pretty good idea. I think mean, most of us know what the earth looks like. We've got a, a globe either in our house or we went to school that we went to school that had a, a, a globe. So the question is, when you think, when the apostles heard the expression to the end of the earth, what do you think that meant to them? A lot of people have the idea that in ancient times, people really didn't know much of anything. They taught, thought the earth was flat, that if you, you, know, you go too far, you're going to fall off the edge or you get eaten by monsters or something like that. <laughs> Now that's, that's basically how most people think about the ancient world. Certainly 2,000 years ago, they probably had no idea what was out there. But I, I'm kind of interested in things like that. I have a lot of, of uh, kind of wide-ranging interests of, in history. I'm a, real, I'm a real lover of history. And I wonder, what did people know a long time ago? What did people know 2,000 years ago? And you know, could they read? Uh, how did they understand the world? Things like that. And uh, so I'm reading some different things from around that time to get a handle on what people, people knew and what they didn't know. And, and I'm actually kind of surprised at how much people had figured out by the first century. Uh, they, there were a number of Greek philosophers and scientists who figured out that the Earth was a sphere. And how they figured that out, you know, I, 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 there are some experiments that they did, but they figured out that the Earth, long before the time of Christ, it was a sphere. And uh, uh, Strabo, who lived right around, who lived actually his life overlapped that of Christ. I think he died around 24 A.D. He was a famous Greek 
uh, ge geographer, and he wrote, I think there's five books on geography, and I read parts, parts of some of those books. It's kind of interesting. But so, he, so this is the view of the ancient world, and people have taken his book of geography and basically reassembled the world and what it looks like. And on a map of basically how uh, uh, Strabo put it together, there is India, China, there's, there's Af you know, Afghanistan, there's Africa, Europe, uh, uh, Britain, Ireland. I mean, they're, 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 it's amazing how much they knew in the first century about how much the world was out there. And think about that. If somebody is living in, in Judea or Galilee, you're part of the Roman Empire. Roman Empire covered... North Africa, uh, uh, northern part of Egypt, Middle East, Turkey, Greece, Italy, Gaul, which would be France, all, all the way up to the British Isles. So yeah, it's a pretty huge area, and Rome had enemies. So they had, the, they had the Germanic people up on the north who were always giving them a hard time, and then they, and on the east they had the Parthians that they were battling from time to time. So there were, there were major empires. And I read a work called uh, the, uh, the Paraplus of the Eruthrian Sea. And I was just kind of interested, how did people get around in the first century at the time of Christ? So this is written around 60 AD, which is right smack when the apostles are taking the gospel all over the world. And they're talking about the trade in the ancient world. And I had no idea that the world was so connected back then. You'd think they didn't have airplanes, they didn't have a lot of things that we have. And they explained that the Roman Empire was trading with people in Persia, in India, and even in China. And what they would do is very expensive, so you only trade things that are extremely valuable and lightweight, basically. So, so what it, that would be, you know, that would be uh, silk from China. It would be gold, silver, um, spices, a lot of different spices, uh, aromatic uh, things, things like that, or tor tortoise shells. That was another thing they liked in the Roman Empire. I guess they made combs and things like that out of it. So they're, they're special shells, tortoise shells. <clears throat> so what they would do is from the Roman Empire. From Rome, they'd sail down to Alexandria, and then they'd take boats up the Nile, and then they'd, they'd go for about a week across the, 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 the desert by camel, caravan, to the uh, uh, basically the Red Sea. And then they'd sail down the Red Sea. They figured out how to sail straight across the Indian Ocean, and they could go to India. And so they traded with India, and then from the west coast of India... There were people who traded with the east coast of India to the west, and then there were, there were also traders who came down inland routes from China trading silk. And so there was silk. There were things going. All, I mean, there, was, there was trade in, in highly valuable commodities going all over the world. So the whole idea, when they said to the end of the world, when Jesus said that, people in ancient times, and you know, the, the, the navigators and, and, and people who, who were along trade routes, they knew the world was an awful lot bigger than the Roman Empire, that it went all the way, at least as far as they knew, from Britain into to Africa and, and uh, way up north into Russia and then going east into China. So uh, they knew that the world was a pretty big place. I don't know if they knew about North and South America, but uh, they certainly knew about the rest of the world, about the whole Eurasia landmass. So... Uh, so when he says that, imagine you're, you grew up in Galilee. Okay, these are all, these are hometown boys from Galilee. And, and Jesus spent his whole ministry in Judea, Galilee, Samaria. That's where he spent his whole time. And he says, all right, you're going to go to the end of the earth. 
Obviously, they're going to have to scatter to do that. And then he leaps after he says that. Okay, what would you be thinking? Okay, this is, and there's no plan B. There's no backup. The whole mission hangs on these 12 men, that he, or 11, but then they replace one, that they, he's, he's put this, sunk the mission into. That's it. He's, he's invested his life into 12 men, and there are some other disciples as well. But he tells them that they're going to take the message to the end of the earth. And then he goes up to heaven. Let, let's read again in, in verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up in a cloud, received them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Couple, thank you. Couple, couple things here. This is the story of the ascension to heaven. Two men in white apparel, obviously, that's referring to angels. And who else is going to know that Jesus is coming back again? And he says, well, it says that they're men, but there are other places in Scripture where it talks about, that people describes uh, uh, individuals as men, and then you find out that they're angels. I think of the story in Genesis 18 and 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, that uh, the Lord shows up with two men, and then you find out that the two men are actually angels. So, so that's... that's that's what I assume, and that's the early Christians assume the same thing. But I think the, the white, the white clothes probably gives it away there too. So, <clears throat> angel uniform. So, uh, now the angels tell the apostles the same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That's Acts one eleven. So they say, so basically they're saying he's coming back. Okay, he's going to come back. And he's going to come back the same way he came. He went up. Now that tells you something useful here. In the Apostles' Creed, which is an encapsulation and short form of the basic core things of the Christian faith, and it's a statement that, that someone would make like before they were getting baptized, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, was the structure of it. And... Part of, part of the foundational teachings of the Christian faith, the foundational beliefs of the faith, are wrapped up in what we just read right here in these, these few verses. It said, I believe in the Father, I believe in, in Jesus Christ, His Son. And then it said, uh, uh, He was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day He arose. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So, this is, this is the foundation, bedrock, Christian faith. He ascended to heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of God, and he's coming back on the day of judgment. <clears throat> in, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 33, Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and he says, we're talking about Jesus was raised with that, and he said, and he's now seated at the right hand of God. And he backs that up by quoting from Psalm 110, Verse 1, or in the, uh, the Septuagint of Psalm 109, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So he's, Jesus, Peter says he's sitting at the right hand of God, waiting for the time when his enemies will be made his footstool. That's 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 very famous quote. It's all over the New Testament. 
it's either quoted or alluded to many places. Jesus himself quotes this, referring to himself in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and then in uh, at the in in the end of Mark, Mark six, Mark fourteen sixty two, Mark sixteen nineteen. Uh, in Mark sixteen nineteen, it says, "So then, after the Lord had spoken to him, he was received up to heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God." That's the long ending of Mark. It's in uh, I counted ten places besides the, the three times that, that Jesus himself quotes this. There are ten places in the New Testament where this is mentioned. It's repeatedly in Hebrews, First Peter, Colossians, Ephesians. I'll put the references in the notes. So this is a basic teaching that's infused in the whole Old New Testament that Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated right now at the right hand of God and he's waiting for the time for, of uh, when his enemies made, made his footstool and he will return. So, question. When the angel said he would return in the same manner in which you saw him go into heaven, <clears throat> what does that mean? What do you think that means? Basically, it means that he's like uh, coming back the same way he left. That's right, coming back. So he was elevated, he went, he went, went from earth up to heaven, it's going to be reversed. He's going to come from heaven down to earth. So it's, it's going to be in reverse of the way it happened. Luke 21. I'll talk a little bit about the ascension. I don't know if I've ever heard a lesson I've taught on the ascension of Christ. Luke 21, 25 to 28. So Jesus is talking about the end. He says, There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and expectation of those things coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now these things begin to happen. Look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. So he goes up and he goes up in a cloud. When it says when he comes down, you're going to see him coming in a cloud. So I think that's perhaps that's what that's what that's the same way. So this is this is the words of Jesus. He says he's coming back. And it will be in the cloud. And when you see that happen, uh, the, the end is at hand here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about the second uh, coming of Jesus. It says that he will descend in, from heaven and the faithful who are still alive on the earth will be caught up together with the, the mm. faithful dead who have been raised from the dead. The dead will be raised and we will be caught up together with him in the clouds. Yeah. All right? Uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and, they will, and, and even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Uh, let's turn. This also reminds me of a passage in Daniel chapter uh, 7. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9, I continued to watch until thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days enthroned himself. His clothing was white as snow, his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame and its wheels a burning fire. And then uh, 
Let's continue down verse 13. I continue to observe the visions in the night. This is Daniel speaking. And behold, one like the Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven until he came to the Ancient of Days and approached him. Then dominion, honor, and the kingdom were given to him, and all peoples, tribes, and languages served him. His authority is an everlasting authority which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Great prophecy about the kingdom, and talking about the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days and receiving a a kingdom that will never end. His dominion will never be destroyed. Uh, Lactantius, a an early Christian writer. He was a prominent teacher in Rome, and he's writing somewhere between 304 and 313 A.D. Quotes from this passage in Daniel chapter 7, and then goes on to share some thoughts about this, the significance for us. And he says, But the prophet, referring to Daniel, comprises both his advents in two words. Advent is the coming of Jesus. So this is the whole idea that there are two comings of Jesus, when he was born, and then again when he comes to the second coming. The prophet Daniel comprises both his advents in few words. Behold, he says, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He did not say, like the Son of God, but the Son of Man, that he might show that he had to be clothed with flesh on earth, that having assumed the form of a man and the condition of mortality, he might teach men righteousness. And when having completed the commands of God, he revealed the truth to the nations, he might also suffer death that he might overcome and lay open the other world also. And thus at length rising again, he might proceed to his father born aloft on a cloud. For the prophet said in addition, and he came, and And came even the Ancient of Days, and he was presented to him, and he called the Most High God the Ancient of Days, whom age and origin cannot comprehend. For he alone was from generations, and he will always be two generations. But that Christ, after his passion and resurrection, was about to to ascend to the God God the Father, David bore witness in these words, and he quotes from Psalm uh, 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Whom could this prophet, being himself a king, called his Lord, who sat at the right hand of God, but Christ the Son of God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Latantius, Divine Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 12, and NIC Fathers, Volume 7, page 111. an interesting quote from Ignatius. Ignatius is interesting to me because he's writing around the year 105, and the Apostle John died somewhere around the year 90 to 100 or so. This is, so this is a contemporary of the Apostle, someone who personally knew his disciple by one or more of the Apostles. He's a bishop of the church in Antioch, and he's, he's talking about this, this whole concept about the, the, the ascension. Nor was this all, but also after he had shown himself to them that he had risen, and not in appearance only, he both ate and drank with them during forty entire days. And thus was he with the flesh received up in their sight unto him that sent him, being with that same flesh to come, accompanied by glory and power. For, say the holy oracles, the same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, 
shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. But if they said he will come at the end of the world without a body, but if they say he'll come at the end of the world without a body, how shall those see him that pierced him? Revelation 1.7 And when they recognize him, how shall they mourn for themselves? For incorporeal beings have neither form nor figure. The point he's making is, Jesus went up bodily. And how are they going to see the one they have pierced if he doesn't come back bodily? So he's make, Ignatius is making the point here that Jesus, just as he was bodily raised into heaven, he will bodily come back to earth. And I think this ties in with what we were talking about before. Why is he called the Son of Man? He, because he has a human body. The Jesus, and you think about this, the Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, had, had bodily form, just like he, he told the people, check out that I have flesh and blood, and I, and I have, uh, check out my hands and my feet and, and the, the, the piercing of my side. Uh, Justin Martyr, writing around the year 160, says, Why did he rise in the flesh in which he suffered? Unless to show the resurrection of the flesh. And wishing to confirm this when his disciples did not know whether to believe he had truly risen from the body and were looking upon him and doubting, he said to them, Do you not yet have faith and see that it is I? It's from Luke 24. And he let them handle him and showed them the prints of the nails in his hands. And when they were by every kind of proof persuaded it was himself in the body, they asked him to eat with them, that they might still more accurately ascertain he had truly risen bodily and ate honeycomb and fish. And when he had thus shown them that there is truly a resurrection of the flesh, wishing to show them this also, it's not impossible for flesh to ascend into heaven. As he had said that our dwelling place is in heaven, he was taken up into heaven while they beheld as he was in the flesh. So, this is pretty, it's pretty wild. And when you imagine the the ascension of Jesus, I don't know if you ever thought about that, that Jesus rose bodily, flesh and bones. He, He showed the apostles that he was flesh. He rose up to heaven as flesh. He is seated at the right hand of God. With a, with a body, a transformed, incorruptible body, and he's going to come down physically so that people will see all over the world, they'll see the one that they have pierced. So this is, it really helps me to get a, a different picture of the resurrection of Jesus. That you, There's someone with a body who's sitting at the right hand of God waiting to come back and waiting for all of his enemies to be, to be made his footstool. Uh, now, Justin makes an application of this. It's not just a theological point. He says, you know, he says, Jesus is like a good physician. So imagine somebody who has a mortal illness. You know they're going to die. They're in hospice care. Okay? What does the physician say? He says, make yourself comfortable. Do whatever you want. You want to smoke cigarettes? Be my guest. Okay? You want to... You're, 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 you're supposed to be on a diet, but you want to eat all your favorite food, or you want to eat junk food, go ahead, make yourself comfortable, you're going to die soon anyway. It's over. Okay, so the, so if, if somebody's convinced that somebody's going to die, that's what they're going to say. He says, but Jesus knows that he's the good physician. He knows our bodies are not going to die. They're going to be raised again. So what is the good physician? 
say. The good physician to somebody who has the chance of life says, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to go on a strict diet. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to take this medicine which is going to make you sick and you're not going to like it. You're going to have to take some painful medicine because it's going to save your life. And that's what Justin says, is that Jesus knows. As the good physician, he knows our bodies are going to rise again, that they will live. And so he's telling us, for that reason, he's not saying go ahead and what you do with your body doesn't matter because it's going to die anyway. He's saying, no, you need to restrain the impulses of the flesh so that your body can be, you can have eternal life and live together with me. And I thought, that's kind of, a, uh, that's, a, that's a good application. He's the good physician. Our bodies have a future that we will become like he is. If we die with him, we will live with him. <clears throat> Let's continue Acts chapter 1 in verse 12. I told Adam when we started here that he better bring his A game today because I've got I've got some stump the chump questions for him. So, Adam, you're going to be on in a minute here. But I'll I'll challenge everybody. But but I'll ask Adam first, right? Acts chapter one. So now we're talking about the twelve apostles. <clears throat> then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. That's pretty graphic. <laughs> and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and no one live in it. And, this is from another Psalm, let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. They proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, whose surname was Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay. Um, the apostles are together in Jerusalem, and it mentions the names of all eleven. And they're also named in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are lists of the, of the twelve apostles there. Of course, Judas is, is missing. He uh, hung himself. That's right. Um, and uh, 
The list, if you compare the list, they're, they're the same, although sometimes people go under different names, but they're the same people. So uh, Judas, the son of James, uh, Luke here in, in Luke 6 and Acts 1, Judas, the son of James, is, is also known as Thaddeus or Labaius from Matthew 10 or Mark 3. Simon the Zealot from Luke and Acts is also known as Simon the Canaanite in Matthew, uh, Matthew 10 and Mark 3. And keep in mind another example. Another example of the people having more than one name. In Mark two and in Luke five, it talks about Levi, the son of Alphaeus, the tax collector. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he's known as Matthew the tax collector, and that is the author of the Gospel of Matthew from uh, from history. The same person, Matthew the tax collector, was also known as Levi, Levi the son of Alphaeus. Okay. So people could have more than one name, but all, all the lists line up with each other. They're all talking about the same people. And while many Christians today hold up Paul in their hearts as far more important than the other apostles, that he eclipsed Peter and he eclipsed any of the twelve who barely get a mention in the scriptures, uh, the church in the beginning held the 12 up as the ultimate heroes that they are the, the they are that they are the ones who laid the foundation of the church they were not failures they accomplished the mission that Jesus gave them to do to take the gospel to the ends of the earth they they they, they suffered and they died and they did exactly what Jesus told him uh, think about some things Jesus said about the 12 Matthew 19 verse 28 Jesus said assuredly I say to you, with the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who follow me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, in Revelation 21, it talks about the great city, that there are twelve foundations of the city, and on those foundations were the names of the twelve apostles. Paul's not mentioned in there. Okay, So I guess the question is, do you see the apostles... The same way that the 12 apostles, the same way that Jesus sees them, or do you see them as minor bit characters that, 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 that the, real, the real person we're waiting for is Paul who's going to tell us, tell us how it is. So how do you view the 12 apostles? Do you see them as heroes? First question, can you even name all 12? Okay. I'm not, I, I, so that's the first question to ask you. It's a rhetorical question. Can you name all 12? Okay, so I've got, and I've got a couple of other questions here just to test you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put Adam on the spot. Which one of the 12 apostles was also called the twin? Oh, what, uh, James? Good guess, but it was Thomas. Okay, Thomas, this is the doubting Thomas, was also known as Didymus or the twin. Which disciple had been a disciple of John the Baptist originally, and then switched and went over to Jesus. Um, James? James. Okay, we have, a, we have a good guess here. That was a good guess also, but actually uh, a, a couple other people got it. It was Andrew, who's the brother of, of Simon Peter. And this, this is another, this is a tougher question to think about. Of the twelve, there are three pairs of brothers. Among the twelve, that, that's half of the half of the uh, half of the twelve apostles were pairs of brothers. So who are the brothers? All right, James, the brother of Thomas, the brother of Peter. 
Well, <laughs> there's fragments of truth uh, woven into there. Okay, yeah, James, James and John are the sons of Zebedee. They're brothers. Peter and Andrew are the sons of, of John or Jonah. They're brothers. And then Matthew, also known as Levi, son of Alphaeus, and uh, uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, are brothers too, although they may have been half-brothers because of, uh, it, talks about their, uh, it talks about the mother of James, son of Alphaeus, uh, in, in one of the scriptures. So some people think they're half-brothers. But you have, you have, right there you have, you know, if you just remember those three sets of brothers, you're halfway done to, to, uh, to be able to name all, all 12. Okay, this next question. Which ones were known as the Sons of Thunder? Oh, James and... Uh, phone, you can phone a friend on that one, right? I can phone a friend. So James and... Uh, Mom, James and... Uh, James and John. Okay. John, okay, John. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one, right? James and John. That's, that's, a, that's a good start. They're, they're known as the Sons of Thunder. And another one, this is a harder one. Which which of the twelve was killed first? Which one died first? Oh, uh, Judas. He was the one who hung himself. That's true. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. You got me on that one. So Judas, <laughs> <laughs> you got me there. All right, Judas died first. All right, it was a trick question. And, and all right, who died second? How about that? Or who died first of the second set, the new set of twelve, the one, the twelve that we just have here? After after Judas was replaced. Who was who's the next one to die? James. Uh, um, uh, Peter. Peter. Peter was on the Not yet, but uh, no. David Adams got it right next to me here. It was uh, it was James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder. He was killed by Herod in Acts chapter twelve. So we'll, we'll see that later. So anyway, that's just a little little uh, just sharpening your understanding. So I've, I've been re- looking through the gospel accounts and just trying to pick to piece together who these people were. And, and 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 to get get a better appreciation, because I want to treat them, look Amen. at them as Jesus did, as the great heroes and the foundation on which the church is built. Uh, so they had to pick a replacement for Judas, who committed suicide here. And so they select two qualified men who had been with Jesus from the time of his baptism up until he was taken up. And they pray, Lord, you know the hearts of these men. And then they draw lots, and the lot falls to Matthias. So he is to the number of apostles is then restored back to the complete twelve, the complete set of twelve. So he'll be he'll be one of the names on the twelve foundations in Revelation. Now Peter said. The reason why they had this is after Jesus is gone, so he isn't instructing them to do this. Peter says they have to do this because of what David had written a thousand years earlier. And he quotes two psalms. He quotes fragments of two psalms, one from Psalm 69 and one from Psalm 109. But he, he, he makes a statement. He says... Uh, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And then he quotes two scriptures, neither what, neither one of which says anything about somebody who's in the inner circle. So when Peter says, David said we have to... Uh, uh, 
David spoke about Judas here, who the one who was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. I think he's probably got more scriptures of more uh, more prophecies of David in mind than just these here. So, uh, uh, we'll we'll take a look at that in, in a second here. One of the things I also noticed that Peter says. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. So what's that tell you about Peter's view of scripture? Okay. Yeah. It's a beautiful picture. One of the classic ways that Christians get attacked and Christians' faith gets attacked is questioning the authority of scripture. Is this really from God? And Peter's attitude was, and Peter was discipled by Jesus, he was one of those there when Jesus said in John 14, 15, 16, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Peter says that David, that the Holy Spirit spoke uh, by the mouth of David. So this is his attitude. When reading the scriptures, this is the Holy Spirit speaking. He's just speaking through David's mouth concerning Jesus. So it tells me something about the scriptures Paul says the same thing in, in uh, chapter 28 of Acts regarding quotes from Isaiah as he's as saying, it's the Holy Spirit is saying it. So it tells me something about the scriptures that, that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it's the Holy Spirit speaking. It also tells me something about the, the Spirit. The Spirit isn't a force. The Spirit, Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not a feeling. The Holy Spirit has a personality. The Holy Spirit is speaking through the mouth of David. So the Holy Spirit is forming words and, and, and saying very specific things. So it gives me a, a, a little bit of insight into the Holy Spirit, the nature and the character of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now Jesus himself quoted another Psalm of David in talking about Judas betraying him. And this is in John chapter 13. Let's read that. John chapter 13, <clears throat> verse 10. This is uh, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus said to, speaking to Peter, He who bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. He knew who betrayed him. Therefore, he said, You're not all clean. So when he washed their feet and taken their garments, he sat down again. He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and, very, and, and say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also need to wash one another's feet. I have been giving you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you, for I know whom I have chosen but that the scripture must be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly I say to you, who receives whomever I sent receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. And then... Uh, uh, verse... Uh, 25, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Who is, who is the betrayer going to be? 
Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. So this is the, the famous story of Judas leaving to betray Jesus. And Jesus says that this is in fulfillment of what it says in Psalm 40. Let's, let's take, take a look there, what it says. So this, as the question is, when, when Peter says, you know, it's one of the, one of the inner circle is going gonna, is gonna to betray and have to be replaced, and he quotes two psalms that don't refer to that, there actually is one psalm of David that he's not quoting, which does, which I think he has in mind as well. Let's turn to Psalm 40. Okay, most Bibles will be Psalm 41, the Septuagint is Psalm 40. And, and actually, this is, early Christians saw this as an amazingly detailed prophecy about Jesus that goes way beyond just Judas betraying him. Start reading in verse 6. My enemies speak evil things against me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see us, he speaks in vain. His heart gathers lawlessness to itself. He went forth and spoke the same. All of my enemies whispered together against me. Against me they devise evil for me. They testify a lawless word against me. Since he is asleep, will he rise again? Remember, sleep is throughout the scriptures a metaphor for death. For even the man of my peace in whom I hoped, he who ate my bread, dealt deceptively with me. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me and raise me up and I will repay them. By this I know you are pleased with me because my enemy did not rejoice over me and because of my innocence you supported me and established me before you forever. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen, amen. So this is about one who ate the bread with him deceives him people are plotting against the innocent man and they say since he's asleep will he rise again that makes no sense if somebody is natu natural sleep because people always wake up when they're asleep mm -hmm. it's a metaphor for death and the word rise again is the same word in the New Testament from the Septuagint the same New Testament as being resurrected so it's a, it's a prophecy about uh, early Christians saw this as a prophecy about Jesus Raise me up, and I will repay them. And he's saved because of his as of his innocence. Amen. Uh, the 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 element about the resurrection, Ignatius, writing around the year one hundred five in Nicene Fathers, volume one, page seventy one, said he really died and was buried and rose from the dead, even as he prayed in a certain place, saying, "But you, O Lord, raise me up again, and I shall repay them." And that's the. Uh, that's from this psalm right here. Uh, <clears throat> Tertullian quotes from the same psalm and makes a similar point. He said, He might also betray, be, be betrayed by any stranger. Did I not find that even here too he fulfilled the psalm? He who did eat bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So he's saying, look, Jesus could have been killed by his enemies. 
But instead, he was betrayed by one in his inner circle, as is explained in this psalm right here. And then he goes on, and he says, second of all, he could have been betrayed by someone in his inner circle, but he was betrayed for silver. He said, and without a price, he might have been betrayed. For what need of a traitor was there in the case of one who offered himself to the people openly and might quite easily have been captured by forces taken by treachery? This might no doubt have been well enough for another Christ, but would not have been suitable for the one who was accomplishing prophecies. For it was written, the righteous one did they sell for silver. That's from Amos chapter 2 and verse 6. So the idea that, that you be betrayed, but he be betrayed the righteous one, which is literally what it says in the Septuagint, would be betrayed by silver. That's uh, Tertullian against Marcion, book 4, chapter 40. And I see Fathers, Volume 3, page 418. In uh, proof of the gospel, Eusebius, in, 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 in the 10th volume of that, he has a whole section of prophecies on Judas, and particularly with the Passion. And he quotes, he says, Psalm 54, that he under, he, the, the early Christians understood that Psalm 54 is also a prophecy about Judas. Let's turn there. In most Bibles, be Psalm 55. Let's read verses 2 to 5. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not despise my supplication. Attend to me and hear me. I am vexed and in prayer and troubled by the enemy's voice and the sinner's affliction. For they turned their lawlessness upon me. And in wrath they were indignant with me. My heart was troubled within me. And the terror of death fell on me. And then in verse 10. Drown them in the sea, O Lord, and divide their tongues, for I see lawlessness and strife in the city. Day and night it shall surround upon the walls lawlessness and trouble and wrongdoing are in her midst, and usury and, tre and, and treachery have not ceased from her squares. For if an enemy reviled me, I would have endured it, and if one hating me boasted against me, I would have hidden from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my guide and my friend, who together with me sweetened our meals. In God's house we walked in unity. Let death come upon them, and let them go down alive into Hades, because evils are in their dwellings, in the very midst of them. But I cried out to God, and the Lord heard me. Evening and morning and midday I shall tell them, I shall proclaim, and he will hear my voice. So this is the... Uh, the, the passage here, it, so it talks about one, he said, look, if, we, if an enemy had, had, uh, had done me in, I would understand that, but it was much worse than that. It was you, one of my peers, a man of my equal, my guide and my friend, the one we ate the sweet bread together. You're the one who betrayed me. So this is, uh, this is the picture. An innocent man's in great distress. He's been di great dis distress. He's been betrayed by a close friend, one he had meals with, and the Lord will punish him and bring him down to the grave. Uh, so Peter quoted from Psalm 69. Let's turn there. It's a great prophecy about the crucifixion. Start reading in verse 21. 
My soul expected disgrace and trouble. I waited for someone to sympathize with me, but no one was there. And for comforters, but I found not one. They gave me gall for my food and vinegar for my drink. Let their table become a snare before them, a recompense and a stumbling block. Let their eyes be darkened so they may not see and bend down their backs continually. Pour out your anger upon them and let, your, your, let the fury of your wrath lay hold of them. Let their dwelling place be laid waste and let no one live in their tents. For they pursued closely the one you slew and they added to the pain of my wounds. Add lawlessness to their lawlessness and let them not enter into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living and not written with the righteous. So this is the, the prophecy. The last part of it is talking about Judas, but the part right before that is talking about the crucifixion. He gave me gall for my food, vinegar for, for my drink. It's a, it's a prophecy about Jesus on the cross. And then uh, the last one that Peter quotes is from Psalm 108, 109. We'll close with that. Psalm 109 in most Bibles and the Septuagint, Psalm 108. O God, do not pass over my praise in silence, for the mouth of the sinner and the mouth of the deceitful man opened against me. They spoke against me with a deceitful tongue and surrounded me with words of hatred and warred against me without cause. Instead of loving me, they falsely accused me, but I continue to pray. So they repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a sinner over him, and let the devil stand at his right hand. I think about, about the devil entering Judas when, uh, when uh, Jesus gave him the bread. And when he is judged, may he go forth condemned. And let his prayer become sin. Let his days be very few. And make, may a different man receive his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and be beggars. Let them be cast out of their houses. So this is... a. One of the early Christian writers talked about the children that is talking about of this man is talking about the spiritual children, the spiritual descendants of Judas. That anyone, those who are like him, who betray Jesus, who turn their backs on Jesus after they are uh, have have an intimate relationship with him, but uh, that's those who betray Jesus. So basically, it's it's the the wicked man, the deceiver. He's going to die at an early age. He'll be taken out. And let another man receive his office. And so that's what Peter quotes that. They choose, they, they select, they draw lots, and they get the number back up to 12. And now everything is set for what happens in Acts chapter 2 of the day of Pentecost. Amen.